So we're talking about exploring James. We're walking through this letter that James wrote to um, believers in the first century who had been scattered all throughout Palestine because they were being persecuted. And um, I'd like to suggest that one of the core themes that he makes in his letter is is something of an idea I'd like us to sit with. It's it's this, really. It's, It's that God wants us to have a living faith that moves from a point of deep trust in him to one of public action where both are part of what it looks like for us to follow him. And many times, sometimes, the way he provokes this to come out in our lives is through different things we would consider tests or trials in our lives. And and this is a central theme in terms of what James is trying to communicate, what he's contending for with the people he's writing to. And uh, I think it's best summarized in verse 17 of chapter 2. If you open up your handout, there's just a section in his letter in which we see what he is trying to say. He, he summarizes this idea that faith in order to be alive must have belief and action. And, and he says, listen, so you see that faith by itself is not enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it, it, it is, he, he said it's, it is not alive. It is dead and useless. And he, just so we understand, he's really speaking primarily to people who have already decided to follow Jesus at a certain level, who have decided to embrace the fact that they trust that Jesus is who he says he is in their lives. And he's provoking them. He's trying to agitate them to move from a point of believing that and trusting in him in that way to to a life that is connected to that belief and that trust. This isn't foreign at all. In fact, Jesus had much the same kind of conversation with the people he interacted with. He would oftentimes couple two things together. In fact, when he spoke about God's forgiveness, he, he very freely talked about the fact that God offers forgiveness without measure to anyone who would seek to receive his forgiveness. But that is not enough. Because he would say that in order for us to receive his forgiveness, we must allow his grace, his forgiveness to flow into us and then convert us, transform us into people who are forgiving. One must lead to the other for it to be complete. Or he would talk about the generosity of God. And we would call that grace to receive something we do not deserve. Love we can never earn. And he would speak about this in such a way that he would say, listen, if we have been touched by the generosity of God in our lives, his grace should be allowed access to the depths of our being and transform us into people who are marked by generosity towards others. One without the other is incomplete. And what James is contending for is is that there is this idea that if we have come to a point of trust in God, then we are to contend for a life that is connected to that trust. It's maybe better put this way. It's one thing to trust God. It's quite another to live a life based, built on that trust. And we could all agree 
it is not easy to do this, to engage this life in this way. In fact, this idea reminds me of um, this idea of, of acting out of the trust we have in someone or in something. And allowing that to affect our actions it reminds me, and the challenge of that reminds me of this story that I read years ago in this book called The Resilient Life. And it was written by a man named Gordon McDonald. And Gordon McDonald was a minister for many years, widely respected, and then he became an author and wrote several books. And now in his later years of life, he's decided to write to a younger generation. And he's seeking to encourage them to think about life in the long range. And, and so he ends up sharing different points of vulnerability from his own life in which he learned some serious lessons. And, and he ends up sharing this one story in which he was in high school. He, he was on the track team. And he was pretty good at an 800-meter race. And he had this coach. His name was Marvin Goldberg. And he talks about the influence Coach Goldberg had on his life. And he taught him this one very hard lesson to learn because this is what happened. A month prior to the league championships, uh, Gordon McDonald was in, in, in the middle. He was... He had the opportunity to race against his fiercest competitor. And so in his mind, he saw this as an opportunity because if he could beat his fiercest competitor a month prior to the championships, then he would be moving into that championships with a lot more confidence and resolve and the ability to know this championship can actually be his for the taking. Coach Goldberg felt the same way, and so a week prior to the race, he called Gordon into his classroom. He taught physics and chemistry, and on the chalkboard, he had two circles denoting two laps, 400 meters each lap for the 800-meter race. And he called him aside. He referred to him as Gordy, and so he said, Gordy, I want you to come here. I want to talk to you, and he says, listen, in order for you to beat, and he would talk about, he would mention the name of the person he was competing against. In order for you to beat him, two things need to happen. One, you need to have a better strategy. And two, you need to run the best race, the best 800-meter race you have ever run. And so here's what's going to happen. You're not going to run against him. You're going to run against the clock. And he went to the chalkboard, and he drew a line at the first 200 meters off of the starting line. And he put a time next to that line, and he said, this is the time you need to hit by a first 200 meters. That's what you're running against. And then he went to the next, the 400 meters, and he drew a line, and he wrote the time, and he said, now this is the time you're going to hit. You're going to kick up your pace a little bit. Your body's been conditioned to do this. By that time, you'll be a little bit warmer. Your muscles will be a little bit more lucid. You'll be able to move into this with greater amounts of strength. And by the time you get to your 600 meters, here's what's going to happen. Your pace should be clicking, and you should be completely in sync. And by the time you hit that turn, I want you to put everything you have left on the line. And if you do this, if you trust me, you have a chance to win. And so Gordon bought in. He knows his coach. He believes his coach. And so he buys into the plan, and they start training every day. They do this. And they put one additional element. At every 200 meters, what they did is one of his teammates would sit there with a stopwatch. And they would yell out the time that Gordon was hitting each time he hit those 200 meters, each segment of the race. And so in their training, he would hit those turns. He would feel his body. He would feel his lungs expand and compress. He would understand the flow of his muscles in terms of when they were cold and when they were warm. And he trained day after day after day for a week leading into this. He would hear the times. He knew how to hit the turns. And he felt very good Saturday morning when he came to the line. 
And that Saturday morning, he's sitting at this race a month prior to the league championships, his fiercest competitor in the pack as well. And he's sitting on the line, and he's feeling a little bit nervous and excited all at the same time, and the gun goes off. And he explains that he springs off of the starting line, and he's running. And as he's running, he starts to look around him, and he realizes that no one else from the pack is with him. And he is a bit ahead of the pack. They're running a slower pace. And as he gets to the first 100 meters, he realizes they're not going to join him. And as he hits the 200-meter turn, he says he is filled with such a level of confidence. He elevated to a point of hubris. He says he was so blindly confident, disconnected from all common sense, that he hits that turn and he starts to feel a little bit giddy. The race is mine for the taking. All that training, all that stress, it wasn't really necessary. They can't keep up. And then something else happened. As he's running and he hits the 300 meters, he notices in the stands that there is this very special girl who had come to see him race. And he starts to be filled with this one thought. If I get farther ahead of the pack, when I hit the turn, the 400 meter mark where she is sitting, she'll be very impressed. And in those 100 meters, he kicks up his pace. And he starts running very hard. And he runs towards her with his eyes locked on where she's at. And he's running, and he hits that corner, and he looks at her. She looks at him. They smile. <laughs> he hits that turn, and he is feeling very good. All of his thoughts are on, what, I wonder what everyone else is thinking, seeing me so far ahead of the pack. This is amazing. 500 meters hit. And something of a growing fatigue starts to penetrate his muscles. And he keeps running. And at the 600 meter mark, where he was supposed to lay everything else he had on the line, the rest of the pack decides to join him. <laughs> and his fiercest competitor ends up running right next to him and ends up running away from him. And as he hits the 700 meters, he realizes that he needs to do something. And so his brain starts trying to make his muscles go, but his body won't respond. And after his competitor leaves him, somebody else from the pack distances themselves, and somebody else distances themselves. And he says he thinks he finished third. But it probably, he says, it was fourth. Most likely, he finished fifth. And he says after he walking off of the track, realizing what had just happened, he goes off, he's walking off the track towards where his team is at, and he sees his coach with his clipboard sitting, sitting there waiting for him. And he starts to feel a lot of fear. He doesn't want to talk to his coach. But he has to. He has to. So he makes his way there. And he remembers his coach, Coach Goldberg, saying several things. But among those things that he said, he, he wanted him to understand this. He says, look, Gordon, this is what happened. And I want you to understand why. But here's what happened. Today, you did not trust me. You, you didn't stick to our plan. You, you, you underestimated your competition. And on Monday morning, I want you to tell me why. 
because Coach Goldberg was pointing out to Gordon what James was talking about. That he was unable, he failed to act on the trust he had instilled, on the plan he had trained in. He was unable to cause his conviction to move him into action that delivered when it showed up. And this is exactly what James was talking about, that a faith, a belief that does not translate into action when it matters, well, it's largely incomplete. And it is not fully alive yet. And I share that story because I think so much of life, if we're honest with ourselves, we may have certain points where we have maybe even think in our, in our minds where we have decided we trust in some way, shape, or form in the God who speaks of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. But when it's time for us to activate those beliefs into daily action, all of a sudden we're invaded with distractions and motivations and fears and insecurities, all of them competing for our attention, all of them drawing us away from what we know to be right and true. And if we are honest with ourselves, this, this idea of having a living faith becomes very, very challenging, but a life that is fully engaged. A living faith doesn't allow the defeat to overcome us. If anything, it contends for our faith to grow through the distractions and challenges and tests and trials. It seeks to endure. It seeks to get back up. It seeks to learn. And it seeks to emerge as something that will not die. And this is what James is contending for. And in his desire to contend for the people reading his letter for a living faith, he says, you know what? We aren't without role models. In fact, people have done it before us, hundreds and thousands of years before us. They have lived this out, and we should look at them. And he points one person out in particular. His name is Abraham. And he just doesn't just point to one person. He points to one incident in his life that he says is a great model of what it might look like for us to engage with a living faith. He says in verse 21, listen, don't you remember that our ancestor, Abraham, a man they would be immediately familiar with because of their history and their reverence for what is commonly known as the father of our faith. He, he says, listen, don't you remember our ancestor, Abraham, was shown to be right with God by his actions? He showed up. And it was most Evident when, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Don't you remember that time in his life where he was asked to do something so out of what is expected? And he did it. You should look, James said, we should look at that model, that example. What it might look like for us to have a living faith? And so I'm hoping. But as we engage, we're going to look at that occurrence in Abraham's life. And I'm hoping we get to see something of how God may want to deal with us as he seeks to emerge within us a living faith. And we need to know a couple things about Abraham before we can engage this account in order for us to know and understand the significance of it. See, here's the thing. Just a little bit backstory to Abraham. He was 75 years old when God first stepped into his life. 75. 
And the way God stepped into his life is he said, listen, I want you to pack all your belongings. I want you to get all of your servants, your wife. I want you to get everything you have, and I want you to leave the land you're familiar with. I want you to leave the land of your father, this land called Ur. I want you to leave it because I have a promise for you. In fact, I have three promises for you. I am going to send you to a land you will inherit. That's one promise. Secondly, I'm going to birth out of you a nation. A nation will be birthed out of you, and the entire world will be blessed because of this nation. Now, here's the thing. That's the second promise. The third promise is something that we, might, we, we may not totally understand if we didn't know that he, his wife was barren. He had no children. And the third promise was, Abraham, there will be so many descendants coming from you and Sarah that you will not be able to count them. Look at the stars in the sky and the sand on the ground. The, the grains are just innumerable. So will your descendants be. And so Abraham, gripped with this promise, decides to pack all his belongings at the young age of 75 and does something very courageous. He leaves. And he starts on this journey. And as he's journeying with God, something happens throughout a period of time of silence. God interjects and reiterates promises because they weren't fulfilled yet. And he steps back into Abraham's life several years later and says, now remember, remember, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you, I'm going to birth a nation out of you. I'm going to give you a land to inherit. And I'm going to give you so many descendants, you're not going to be able to count them. Just remember that. And then God would step back. And Abraham would continue to go and journey and fight the doubts and the insecurities and wonder if it's ever going to happen. It's to the point where 24 years after leaving Ur without having any evidence of this happening, God steps back into Abraham's life and says, now remember my promises. I'm going to birth a nation out of you. I'm going to give you a land to inherit. I'm going to give you so many descendants you will not be able to count them. Abraham kind of loses it a little bit which is completely understandable. His doubts emerge and take over. He says, God, how in the world are you going to do this? I don't have any children. What are you talking about? And then God says something that would strike us a bit absurd. He says, listen, I'm going to go away again. And when I come back, your wife Sarah would have given you a child. And Sarah, apparently, in this account, Sarah's inside the tent, and God is speaking with Abraham outside. And apparently, Sarah can hear what God is saying. And Sarah's 90 years old. And she's inside the tent listening to what God is saying to Abraham. And the minute God says, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a child, she's going to give birth to a child, she starts to laugh. Almost a little bit of an uncontrollable laugh. Like, are you kidding me, laugh? And she's laughing to the point where God stops having this conversation with Abraham and calls Sarah on the carpet. And says, hey, Abraham, why, why is Sarah laughing? Is anything too difficult for God? And Sarah gets really afraid. And she says, I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. And then God doesn't let her get away with it, says, oh, yeah, you did. I heard it. You laughed. But it's going to happen. And then it happened. 
about a year later, 25 years after leaving Earth, it happened. And I love the way the scriptures tell us this came to pass. And in Genesis 21, I asked them to put this up there. We're told that something happened, something miraculous. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. He did exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. And then I love Sarah's reaction. She, we're told later, just a little bit later, that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter, a different kind of laughter, filled with joy, not cynicism, but with nothing short of glee. Because all he hear about this will laugh with me. Why will they laugh with me? Because it's unexplainable unless it's God. It's impossible unless it was God. And, and we're told that she says, listen, they will, they will find out and they will wonder, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet, 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 I have given Abraham a son. It has happened. And Isaac becomes the living evidence that God delivers on his promise. It's powerful. So every time they see Isaac, they see that God delivers on his promise. And you could almost feel the roots of Abraham and Sarah's trust deepening and solidifying in what God promises. Because if he could do something so miraculous as this, then maybe he can birth a nation. And maybe he can give us a land to inherit. And maybe he can multiply our descendants to no measure. And their trust deepened to such a level that God decided to put it to the test. He wanted to provoke it into a new level of life. And about 12 to 15 years later, after about 37 to 40 years of having to walk with God, we come to Genesis 22. We're told in verse 1 that sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. He intentionally put Abraham's trust in him to the test. Abraham, God called. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. I know it is you speaking to me. I understand you are getting my attention, and I am ready to listen. And he says, good, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your son, your only son, yes, just so we understand each other, Isaac, the son that was born to you 12 to 15 years ago, I want you to take him whom you love so much, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah, the, the son of promise. I want you to take him, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah, and I want you to go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you, which would immediately cause Abraham to feel a bit of repulsion at the very thought of sacrificing the one he loves most and offering him up to God. And this idea, this possibility that God would even dare say something like this it would strike us as shocking, violent, extreme, highly inappropriate. How would 
God dare to ask something so crazy? And the sad reality is that Abraham was living in a culture in a time where other religions around him commonly practiced what it looked like to sacrifice human beings to their deities to earn their appeasement and their favor. And yet Abraham had never experienced God's character this way. God's character to Abraham had always been merciful and loving and faithful. One who protected him. One who provided for him. One who kept his word. And this trust that had been cultivated and deepened over years of following God was now being put on the line. See, I think God was wondering, how, Abraham, are you going to respond when I put my finger on what you love most? And we aren't told how Abraham felt. Uh, it, we, it is not difficult for us to imagine, however, that he must have been terrified, confused, repulsed, the possibility is real that he had nothing but thoughts and emotions laced with anxiety and fear. Which makes his response so incredible. Which makes his response the very marking point James uses to say this is what faith fully alive looks like. Because Abraham decides, in the midst of all of these internal turmoils, in the midst of maybe even the doubts and confusion, to step towards the path of obedience. We're told in verse 3 that the next morning, Abraham got up early, he saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac, and this is very important. Then he went off, he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering. He got everything he needed. Notice there is no calf, there is no lamb, there is nothing except his servants, Wood and Isaac. And we're told that he set out for the place God told him about. He begins the journey of obedience. He, he does everything asked of him and he sets on this what ends up becoming a three-day journey. And now, here's the thing. We have the vantage point of being able to look back at the complete account. And we know that God didn't let Abraham go through with it. He did something better. He provided. And Lord willing, we'll be able to walk this out with Abraham next week, and we'll be able to see what an amazing thing God brought about when Abraham decided to activate his faith to become fully alive. But in our remaining moments here, as we see what Abraham did to respond, and as we see this trust being put to the test, I'm hoping that we are able to kind of switch it to what it might look like for us to step into a living faith. And I'd like us to consider a couple things. Firstly, I'd like to consider, suggest that for us, living faith begins with cultivating deep trust in God. And this is key. It doesn't just happen. Deep trust in God, it doesn't happen if it is not actively cultivated. In the same way that Gordon thought he had a certain level of trust in his coach and strategy, but he didn't. In the same way his coach asked him to go back and review, I want you to look inward. And I want you to find out what it is that caused you to, de 
to derail from what you and I had discussed. Because that process will strengthen your trust here. In that same way, in the same way that Abraham had to look inward and ask God, what's going on? When are you going to show up? Enable God to step in and solidify their trust. I am suggesting that for us, it requires us to look inward, to dig deep into our soul, and we are to consider certain things. I I wonder how many of us, we have areas in our lives where we, honestly, doubt God. Well, we doubt he will show up, deliver. He'll come through. And I wonder how many of us are in need of looking at those areas. See, I can't trust you here, God, because in the past I was burned. I can't trust you here, God, because in the past I let myself down. I can't trust you here because in the past I feel like I was let down. And yet God may want us to step into those places, to examine them, to have the very hard discipline of looking at them square in the face so that God can step into those places with us and strengthen our trust with him. I wonder how many of us, maybe it is not a matter of looking at areas where we may have doubt. Maybe it's another area of our lives where we are in his house and we hear his word and we know within our heart of hearts that what we hear about God is true. But when it comes to living it out in our everyday life, there are elements in our lives that choke its life out. And in order for faith to have a chance, God may be asking us to clean certain things out, to remove certain things. In the same way we would remove weeds and rocks and other things from a garden we would like to see emerge. There is something of attending of our heart that God deeply cares about. And Maybe it may not even be that. Maybe it may be looking into moving out of isolation into community because relationships nurture our faith. Or maybe it might be exposing ourselves to his word on on a more regular basis because it becomes fertilizer for us that reminds us of his goodness and of his nourishing presence in our lives. We long to activate life within us, faith to come fully alive. See, if we do this, if we cultivate a deep trust in God, then when sometimes God will provoke our faith to grow by placing his finger on what we love deeply or fear mostly. And there are areas in our lives, especially in terms of, if we look at Abraham's case, there is nothing he loved more, no one he loved more than Isaac, and yet that is what makes Abraham remarkable, isn't it? He gave God access. There may be areas in our lives God may be touching that. Maybe we could put it this way. God, you can have everything else except this. Not that. Not that. I love this too much. Or I'm afraid of this too much. And the area in which we resist because we feel nothing but anxiety and maybe even levels of terror and fear, maybe the very areas God may be asking us to give him access to because in those areas is where faith 
becomes rigorous and strong and resilient. And if we cultivate a heart that allows him access to the tender parts of our lives, then inevitably our faith, living faith, will show up in the external parts of who we are. Inevitably, it will show up everywhere else. See, if we cultivate deep trust, we give him access to what we fear most or love most, faith will show up, which is really our final thought here. And I love this idea that living faith. See, Abraham didn't just believe and trust in God. He chopped wood. He got ready for what God asked him to do. And then he set about on the path God asked him to take. He moved into it. And I'm just reminded of this uh, one quote in which a nun, her name was St. Teresa, and she lived in a small town in France years ago. And she, in a moment of honesty, she wrote this down. And I, I just found it very refreshing because I, I think her example encapsulates what living faith may look like. But this is what she had to say. She said, listen, she lived in a convent. And, and she said, there is this one sister in the community who has a knack of rubbing me the wrong way at every turn. Her mannerisms, her ways of speaking, her character strike me as unlovable. Which is, she's a nun. <laughs> so if she's a nun feeling this way, gosh, that's so relieving for us. But then we see the heart that she cultivated. Then we see the access God had in her life. And it shows up. She says, but then, she's a sister. God must love her dearly. So I'm not going to let my natural dislike of her get the best of me. A life cultivated deeply in him. Giving him access to every part of who we are. Thus, I remind myself that Christian love is not a matter of feelings. It means doing things. So, I have determined to treat the sister as if she is the person I love best in the world. Every time I meet her, I pray for her. And I offer thanks to God for her virtues and her efforts. I feel certain that Jesus would like me to do this. Abraham chopped wood, got his son, set on the path. St. Teresa loved the unlovable. What does it look like for us? To allow our faith to penetrate our work. To allow our faith to penetrate our home lives. To allow our faith to penetrate our friendships. In places where there is no pretense, where we are nothing but real, may his real gritty love show up. Who in our lives are we supposed to love? Are we supposed to enduringly love? Who are we supposed to forgive? Be generous with? Where is our faith looking to become fully alive? May we allow it. May we allow it to live. May we allow it to flourish. May our trust in God turn into action. And may many people be blessed. Because they will see it had to be God. There's no other way to explain it.
There's just no other way. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you are the one who whose life-giving power overcomes our brokenness, our weaknesses, our inclinations. You are the one who is able to make us people who love out of the love you give us, who forgive and give generously because who can give more than you? I pray that the trust we have in you, even if it is as small as a mustard seed, would be given room to grow. That you would help us cultivate deep trust. That you would help us give you access to the places we love most and fear most. And I pray, God, that you would flow through us in such a powerful way that you show up in the external parts of our lives. May we have a living faith. We pray for this, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.